0: Greetings everyone, welcome to the Lift Effect podcast. I am your host, Matt McNeil, founder, clinical director, and director of human performance at Lift Effect, where we assist professional pilots with maintaining better mental health and optimizing their mental skills. The goal of this podcast is simple, to help pilots and other high liability professionals and disciplines come out of the shadows to discover how we can live better lives personally and professionally. Join us each episode as we discuss various topics, ranging from mental health, mental skills and performance, to business, entrepreneurship, and a few other surprises along the way. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome to another episode of Lift Effect Podcast. Matt here. Flying solo today, single pilot, single seat. Uh, Carl's out for; um, he's got some stuff that he he's doing. So I thought I would just um, run one of these on my own. So what should we talk about? What do you guys think? What would be uh, what would be good? What haven't we covered? So when I was thinking about today, since I'm on my own, I don't have Carl to uh, ask questions. He usually looks at all the questions and. He just lobs them over. I kind of like to not know uh, what the <laughs> what the questions are. Uh, I appreciate the spontaneity. I think it keeps things a little more fun. I'm not a whole lot into structure. Um, and I could certainly look into the questions. Uh, I've got a, a list of. We we. It's funny when the questions come in. We get we sort of they get put into buckets. You know, here's a question on performance. Here's a question on mental health. Here's a question on. Um, you know, there's, there's been a, a bunch of questions that have come up that are questions about Matt, uh, background wise, or, you know, things that maybe I have mentioned that I never really got into. I have purposely kind of avoided those just not because I'm trying to hide. Um, well, maybe a little bit, but no, not really, but because I, you know, just didn't feel like those were all that important but i could maybe field through a couple of these um since you know it's just me here today and i don't mind sharing a little bit about my own experience and another thing i wanted to to talk about which has been getting a lot of a lot of consistent questions on on breathing some of these questions are you know why is it Why do you keep talking about breathing so much? Why is breathing so important? Aren't you maybe placing a little too much emphasis on breathing? So on and so forth. So maybe we could delve into that for a little bit today. I'll try to keep this episode pretty succinct and short just so you can go on with the rest of your day. But um, why don't we do that? So, okay, here's what I'll do. I'm going to pull up a few questions. I'm just going to open this up and get into the folder and i will attempt to answer some just a couple questions maybe you'll find them interesting maybe not but what the hell okay so let me just go through some of these so um why do you not mention the carrier that you used to fly for uh I think people know the carrier I f- flew for. You can find that out, but simply because I don't represent that carrier, my opinions are not representative of my former employer, um, and I just think it just kind kind of keeps it separate. One of the things that I've been acutely aware of is the you know the difference between employers, the difference between carriers. Um, sometimes it it can get contentious and which is weird that was always weird to me in the the community um the pilot community is one is one carrier better than the other who gets paid more who doesn't get paid more who's got a better contract who doesn't have a better contract who's got hires more military pilots who hires more civilian pilots who hires more people of color who hires more women who hires more people that have um you know their sexual orientation is different it it there's all this you know, chatter around that, and I and I think that the the experience of just our profession is universal, and and I try to focus on the universal experiences of our profession and the universal experiences of just being a human being, just being a person, a professional. Um, one of the things you know, if you were to fill, one of my my clients always talks about this, and he's right. If if you were to fill a stadium with all commercial 121 pilots in the United States it, the stadium would still be half empty i mean that's that's how few of us there are it's 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 a very tiny group and i think our are uni- our, there's some very universal common experiences that we all have so i've always tried to not really like try to differentiate the difference now i know that there's differences it's not to say that there aren't there aren't differences out there between your employer and, and not all employers are equal and some pilots are, are, are more abused uh, by their employers than others. But I've purposely stayed away from, from that. Um, one question I've got is, is there a difference between regional pilots and um, mainline or national carrier pilots? I think in the past, the experience level was different. The regionals were where less experienced pilots were um and the you know you get more experience and then you move on to the the mainline carriers that has changed i think the the playing field has become a lot more level because of this the pent-up need for pilots but is the flying different yeah the flying is different um now some of you guys are gonna are gonna argue guys and gals are gonna are gonna say matt you're wrong but we do a lot more legs uh the smaller the carrier you're at regional pilots are used to flying you know five sometimes seven legs in a day whereas just because they're not doing hub to hub but they're doing hub to small little community where you can get a smaller airplane in than uh, a mainline carrier so the the distances between legs are less and i think that the um there there's challenges with doing a lot more legs there's mainline carrier has a lot longer flights which has its own unique set of challenges they're crossing a lot more time zones so there's circadian disruption challenges that maybe the smaller carrier the regional pilots don't have the they still have circadian disruption for sure they still can do three or four time zones um, but they're not you know crossing the pond where they're you know 12 15 hours ahead the duration is is less but the the amounts of ups and downs going up and down and up and down multiple times a day has its own unique set of challenges so there's there's a a difference uh a difference there another okay another question what somebody asked a question which i thought this was interesting what kind of car do i drive i'm not sure why that's relevant uh Okay, I've have a Nissan Pathfinder. I've had a Nissan Pathfinder since 1990. When did I get my first Pathfinder? 97, and I've had four of them. I love Nissan Pathfinders. I always have a Pathfinder. Uh, I think it's a great car. I think Nissans are totally underrated car. And the other car I have, uh, I've got a couple other cars. One of them is an electric car. Uh, This is my first electric car that I ever bought, and it's not a Tesla. Um. Okay, so that's that. Why? That's an interesting question, Carl. Some of these questions I get, I'm always like, why do people want? To? And Carl's like, I think people just want to know more about about who is this guy, right? Which I can appreciate. That another question is, Matt, you've talked, you've mentioned music a lot, Matt. You've mentioned music a lot. It seems like you have played a lot of music, and do you continue to play? Have you played in any bands, so on and so forth? Yes. Uh, music has been a huge part of my life. It started when I was 11 or 12, when I got my first guitar, and it just was like, it opened up this whole world to me. So I, you know, played in bands when I was uh, in high school and all throughout college and even after. Um, some of these are just little unknown bands. I've been in a band that was has been signed. Um, we did tour was a great experience dealing with a record label was the worst experience in the world. Um, do I continue to play? I do. I, I play music all the time. It's a huge part of my life. I have, uh, one primary writing partner that I've worked with for over 20 years. Um, he's a, uh, he's a Brit, but he actually lives in New York city and we have collaborated. I'm not gonna mention his name, but he's, he's a, a accomplished well-known producer and we have worked together every week for the last 20 years we've um some of our stuff got tied up with uh label related things and um that is all now resolved so i want to start putting more music out um just for fun right so yeah big part of my life i play guitar i play bass and keyboards and a little bit of drums or just whatever just make noise so yeah big part of my existence um I think once some of this stuff gets put up on Spotify, I can tell you where you can find it if you want to listen to some music that that I've created. So that's that Uh, creativity, huge part of my life. I've really, when I'm not being creative, I tend to get really depressed. Right? I just, I creativity. I I think the greatest definition of depression is a complete lack of creativity. I think that's very true. So I, I have really worked to make creativity a part of my life. There's been times where I have not been very creative. Um, I think even times where I was totally burned out and just didn't want to have anything to do with it. And taking breaks is important. But I think as I even get older, the to be able to continue with creativity, create you know creative work is a huge factor in um, in just my overall well being, overall mental health. All right, here's another one. How long have you been married? You talk about relationships, wondering what your own relationships are like. If you're comfortable sharing, yeah, I've been married for it's going to be 20 years. Um, come this December, I met my wife in when I was in college. She had uh, graduated. Um, I took the the longer route for college, um, but she we we met in a uh, uh there was a a bar restaurant that we both worked at. And, um, I guess she, (laughs) was she my boss don't tell her that I think she was my boss. Um, but I originally got hired to like, kind of just, you know, do some work behind the counter some cooking. It was sort of like a, it was like a coffee shop that had a restaurant and had a bar and had a, it was a, it was a a cool place to hang out. I used to just hang out there all the time between classes or whatever. And finally they're like, dude, do you want to just work here? Because you're here all the time. You might as well get paid. So I was like, "Yeah, it sounds great. I'll hang out and drink coffee and and uh, and get paid." And so we uh, we met that way. We were not. We didn't date. We were just actually were pretty good friends. I was in a different relationship with somebody else. She was with somebody else, and we just were really, really good friends. We had we we had a lot of commonalities in music, and uh, she's got a very dark sense of humor. So do I. Um, kind of the grave graveyard humor. We really. Bonded over that, and we we uh, were good friends. And interestingly enough, this this place, um, I they moved me from <laughs> from being a a, a a cook behind the counter and then working the counter. They said we need a bouncer. <laughs> Which, if anybody knows, I'm not like a huge guy, right? I'm like five ten, 165 pounds, right? Right, not a big guy. But they they had me. Um, I was not, I wasn't afraid to tussle right a little bit, but more importantly, um, I wasn't afraid to deescalate a situation. I could just, I could sort of talk the most violent drunk from, you know, being totally angry off the wall into, you know, uh, it just became a, a pussy cat. Right. And so I, I had this ability to deescalate situations I just thought it was, I liked it. It was fun. I, I I understand the guy that's mad and drunk and is, is upset and wants to beat the shit out of everybody. I, I get it. I, I, you know, it's cool. I kind of grew up with those guys. And so they, they quickly moved me out to the door. Um, and, and honestly, it was very easy to tussle with drunk guys because they're drunk and I was not. And so. It's like, you know, it's kind of not really a fair challenge, but I would just de-escalate the situations. And so I loved working the door. It was, it was super fun. I would mingle with people and got to know people and I'd be hanging out. And and so uh that was my experience. That's how I met my wife. And she ended up moving to New York. I was still in college, finished that, and we lost touch. And then when uh I was you know moved back to New York was was living with my college roommate and like we kind of just had bumped into each other. My wife and I bumped into each other and she came over one night and we had just to catch up and we always say she came over and then she never left. And so that was the uh that was the story for that. Do I have challenges in my marriage? Of course I have challenges in my in my marriage. Uh everybody has challenges in their marriage. I don't I don't think there's a marriage out there that doesn't have challenges. So uh yeah, my marriage is not perfect. We have to work on it. Sometimes it's it ebbs and flows with how well we're we're communicating with each other and our level of well-being. But I'm you know, but I my, I'm I'm committed and and I and she's a, a huge important most important person in my life, other than my child. And so um but the marriage is something that that takes it takes some work and and you know, we all grow at different rates. There's times when I've been in a big growth mode and and she hasn't and times where she's been in a in a big growth mode and and I maybe haven't. And so you got to you got to be able to manage those situations. So but uh that is my that is my story. My wife is a psychiatric um she she works in uh, adult behavioral health as a as a uh a medical professional and um that's that. Okay let's see okay i'll do one more question about me let me find one that um let's see okay here's i like this one here's a good question matt since we all have our own crazy and you've mentioned that you have your own crazy could you elaborate obviously please don't incriminate yourself in any way (laughs) i'm not gonna incriminate myself what is my okay so what is my uh where what are my challenges where i have to really work at um and i you look i i to i've talked about it before i don't like the words depression or anxiety or obsession or blah 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 i think the word activated is a much more uh universal term and activation to me just means when am i not feeling at my best like when i'm feeling like i'm getting a bit hooked and i'm i'm so and then i start to suffer so i've said in the past that depression is kind of like this rear it's like staring in the rearview mirror it's this it's this past tensing orientation where you know most people with depression that i've worked with the, the the number one thing they say is you know what's the point it's just nothing ever really works it's I, why get out of bed? Why try? Because it always just kind of leads to bad things. That's kind of like the depressive, uh, the, the layman sort of depressive orientation. And then there's the future focusing orientation, which is what is the threat that's going to, it's going to get me in the future around the corner. What, what is going to, what is going to come and grab me and, and suck me in, in the future. And that is kind of like the definition of anxiety. I am much more of an anxious, my states of activation are much more worry pervasive about future stuff than they are past reflection. We all go back and forth. We all oscillate, but I think most of us kind of have our own flavor. Are we more rearward facing or are we more worried about what's in front? I'm definitely a, a worried about what's in front kind of person. And when I look back, when I was a kid, I I was a pretty anxious kid you know, that I think it was, it was triggered, um, when my parents split up, uh, I was about seven and it was, I don't, you know, my memories of that time are pretty foggy. I think just because, I don't know, maybe I just sort of dissociated out of it or just didn't you know but it was sort of this weird confusing time of like coming and going and not really understanding what was happening and um you know my parents didn't you know they i don't think they knew they were quite young and didn't really know how to like communicate that stuff uh you know they did the best that they could but it sort of left some big holes of communication and then what happened was I don't think I was perseverating on that, but it started to manifest itself in other things. And, you know, I was like, not a great student in school. I was like the daydreamer. Um, I did not learn the same way. I didn't learn the same way that, you know, the standard way of learning. I was just like, you know, I just had a weird way of integrating material and, back then there was no like you know individual education plans or or anything like like that they didn't have they were really stupid back then about how to educate people it was just like here's the way we educate people and if you don't fit into that you get put in the dummy group and so i kind of ended up in like the the the, the group with the the screw ups you know all of us screw up kids the ones that just we didn't do well in on our tests and and uh, just kind of got labeled as the clowns or the 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 rebellious kids or I got put in with the bad group. And part of what was going on was I had so much stuff happening at home that was like not really being attended to, and it manifested itself in my behavior, and my behavior was I just tended to kind of check out i didn't i wasn't interested i didn't want to deal with it i remember like i would manifest with physical symptoms so like i remember starting to get like like headaches all the time i get headaches every day or stomach aches before i had to go to school every single day and you know my parents were just like get up you got to go you know you got to go to school there was like you know this what wasn't a lot of coochie coo around that, which is fine. I not. Mean, I don't feel bad about that. I mean, it's just, they were trying to figure their lives out. They had a lot going on and it was not, not easy with, with me and my, you know, my siblings. And, and it was, and so, but, but I tended to become very somatic. And I think that is, as I've lived throughout my life, some of my tells are um, interesting. Is mean, I'm I'm a pretty cerebral person, but emotionally I'm very somatic. Like, so where oftentimes before my my brain is aware of even what's going on, it's my body is starting to react. And so I tend to get in the past, I've 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 gotten pretty wrapped around the axle about physical symptoms that used to really scare me. When I was uh, younger, you know, I would have these sort of physical sensations and I oh my God, what's, you know, what is going on? What is going on? And, and I've had to really work at, at that over my life, a lot of the work I've done uh, just in my own personal development was, was being able to figure out how to navigate those experiences and not get wrapped around the axle. And I think when I tend to get really wrapped around the axle is it will be some kind of a physical um you know physical manifestation so i i harbor a lot of that in the body some people don't at all they're just it's all in their head it's all sort of in their thinking um and they just don't they don't have the the physical stuff so that's that's my crazy so okay here's the answer what is matt's crazy my crazy or where i get wrapped around the axle in the, the past it has been the physical you know, physical manifestations of stress, whether it's, you know, back aches or stomach aches or heart palpitations or uncomfortable feeling, you know, buzzing sensations and these kinds of things where, you know, you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm dying. And I've had to work, work through that. And I think the difference is so a lot of times my, my clients will say, well, you know, do, do you still have these things? Well, of course I still have these things happen. That the, the objective is not to say, don't have these things happen. That's just how I'm wired up. The difference is, is that in the past, before I really did a lot of work on myself, I would have these things and then it just gets stuck in it for weeks to months. It would just go on and on and on. And now I think when they come up, I, I figure out how to unhook and just move through that in a much more expedient way than i did in the past so that's my uh that's my crazy if you want to call it crazy it's not crazy it's just this is my patterns this is my the way things manifest just like we all have these things i have them we all do and uh it's just a question of working on them and and dealing with them i think is the objective not i want to you know completely eliminate this from my life that's like saying don't ever have bad thoughts or you know, have uncomfortable feelings. Well, good luck. You know that that's not going to really happen. So, all right. So, there's a few questions about me. Maybe you're totally bored at this point. I don't know. Okay, let's talk about breathing. Breathing is now. Look, I I could give you my own opinions and my own anecdotal evidence uh, about about breathing, but. And uh, anecdote, anecdotal stuff is is okay. There's nothing wrong with anecdotal things. And, you know, I like to use the research. I like to use the science. Anecdotes is still part of science. Somebody somebody said the other day, well, if it's anecdotal, it's not scientific. That's not true, actually. Anecdotes is a great place to start, uh, especially when you're looking at experimental design. It starts with anecdotes, right? That's how you can create a hypothesis that's, that, that is, you know somewhat relatable and, and makes sense it starts with anecdotes so anecdotal evidence is is a powerful thing you need to be able to support it eventually you got to be able to test it um to see if you can get closer and closer to the truth but anecdotes is okay so here's my anecdotal thing about breathing breathing is transformative that i've observed in myself and with my clients in terms of regulating how you feel, especially when you become really ginned up and really activated. The the breathing follows that. And we'll get into this and we'll then look at the evidence in a second here. But the breathing is is a key factor in being, being able to regulate the level of activation of your nervous system. And the level of activation of your nervous system changes how you cognate how you think how you reason how you focus and so breathing is a really important factor second i remember attending this meditation retreat one time and somebody said what's with all the breathing shit i why was i why was focused on the breath and the teacher who was a very famous meditation teacher uh he goes "Well, tell you what just just hold your breath for a minute and he had everybody hold their breath and he never said, okay, you know, breathe again. So people start gasp, you know, gasping and, and like, okay, oh, like, you know, they can't hold it forever. And he goes, yeah, that's why your breath is important. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty funny. Breathing is something we're always doing. And as long as you're breathing, there's a lot more that is right with you than wrong with you. And so if you aren't breathing, you're not going to be around for very long. So that's why breathing is important. Second is, is, it is a constant companion. The reason that when we learn mindfulness strategies and we we use the breath, it's because it's this constant thing that's always there. Whether you want it to be or not, it's there. And it's real-time data. It's a real sensation. There's a lot of sensations that that come with it. You know, where you experience it in your nose or in your throat or in your chest or in your abdomen. There's a lot of different ways you can work with that to give yourself a uh, you know an attitude indicator if you will. And so that's why the breath is important. But let's let's look at some other implications. Now, there's a lot of really good studies, there's a lot of uh some very good books about breathing. And one book that I read that I thought was just so good and it it was uh it kind of changed my perspective on breathing is a book called the oxygen advantage by a guy named Patrick uh, McEwan. He's uh, he's from Ireland and um, he wrote this book. And, and when I read this book, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, it's all based on data and science. And so what I thought is maybe I could just use that as a reference for our discussion today. And so let me just read a couple things for you. Um, about from the oxygen advantage. So I'll start with a quote. As you know, I like to do. I think quotes from books are really powerful. Don't take my words for it. Take the authors. So here's a quote. It says, uh, We can live without food for weeks and water for days, but air for just a few brief minutes. While we spend a great deal of time and attention on what we eat and drink, we pay practically no attention to the air we breathe. It is common knowledge that our daily consumption of food and water must be of a certain quality and quantity. Too much or too little spells trouble. We also recognize the importance of breathing good quality air, but what about the quantity? How much air should we breathe for optimum health? Wouldn't it be fair to surmise that air, even more important than food or water for human survival, must also meet basic requirements? The point of this book is to elevate, this is his quote, the point of this book is to elevate your awareness of how you can harness your breath To reclaim your body's natural ability to breathe in a way that will help you achieve lifelong health and fitness, whether you are running to catch up with your kids or running to win a gold medal. My promise is that by applying the concepts and simple exercises in this book, each and every person, whether they consider themselves an athlete or not, will be able to attain tangible and profound improvements to their health, fitness, and performance within just a few weeks. Isn't it time you did more? conditioning winning and living with less effort so that's kind of a, a a little synthesis of this of this book and and patrick is really one of the world's leading teachers in the um it's it's called B- Butiek- 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 buteyko 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 mm-hmm. b-u-t-e-y-k-o buteyko method uh breathing method which was created in the 50s by a a, a russian physician and so his story, uh, Patrick's story, is he suffered from asthma for decades until he found this method, and he, which he applied it, and he completely reversed his asthmatic symptoms. And then it, it was such a life-changing experience for him that he dedicated his life to helping other people optimize their breathing. And so what he does in this book is he he takes this method and he extends it into an approach he calls the oxygen advantage. And uh, it's, it's really fascinating. So this book is really helpful for optimizing. If you have something like asthma or you're just interested in better performance, especially in sports, but I would just even say in life, um, this is a really good book to read. And it's, it's got tons and tons of ideas. And so let me just, I want to just share a few ideas from this book. And, uh, and then you can decide if it's something that you want to read or not. So, um, let's see, here's another quote, scientific research, as well as the experience of thousands of people I've worked with has shown me the vital importance of learning how to breathe correctly. The problem is that correct breathing, which should be everyone's birthright has become extremely challenging in our modern society. We assume that the body reflexively knows how much air it needs at all times, but unfortunately this is not the case. Over the centuries, we have altered our environment so dramatically that many of us have forgotten our innate way of breathing. The process of breathing has been warped by chronic stress, sedentary lifestyle, unhealthy habits, overheated homes, and lack of fitness. All of these contribute to poor breathing habits. These in turn contribute to lethargy, weight gain, sleep problems, respiratory conditions, and heart disease. Modern living gradually increases the amount of air we breathe. And while getting more oxygen into our lungs might seem like a good idea, here's where it gets really interesting, guys, is in fact light breathing that is a testament to good health and fitness. It's not deep breathing. It's lighter breathing. Think of an overweight tourist and an Olympian both arriving for the summer games. As they pick up their luggage and carried it up a flight of stairs, whom would you expect to be huffing and puffing? Certainly not the Olympian. The biggest obstacle to your health and fitness is a rarely identified problem: chronic overbreathing. We can breathe two or three times more air than required without knowing it. So here's the first thing that you should try to think about this. We breathe way too much. And so what are a few signs that you could be overbreathing? What well, can you visibly notice or hear yourself breathing when you're at rest? You ever just sat next to somebody that's just, you can hear them breathing. Do you breathe more from your chest than from your, your abdomen, more thoracic breathing than diaphragmatic breathing? Do you snore? It's a big one. How about, uh, at night? Do you breathe through your mouth when you sleep? Do you breathe, uh, through your mouth during the day? Mouth breathing. That's a big one. So some of this if you answer to this and this isn't to diagnose you with a breathing disorder that's not that's not what we're trying to do here but this is you may have a tendency to overbreathe and so wh- okay so then the question is wh- why is this an, why is this an issue so here's a here's a quote the crucial point to remember is that hemoglobin releases oxygen when in the presence of carbon dioxide when we overbreathe too much carbon dioxide is washed from the lungs, blood, tissue, and cells. This condition is called hypocapnia, causing the hemoglobin to hold on to oxygen, resulting in reduced oxygen release and therefore reduced oxygen delivery to tissues and organs. With less oxygen delivered to the muscles, they cannot work as, work as effectively as we might like them to. As counterintuitive as it may seem, the urge to take bigger, deeper breaths when you hit the wall during exercise, does not provide the muscles with more oxygen, but effectively reduces oxygenation even further. In contrast, when breathing volume remains nearer to correct levels, the pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood is higher, loosening the bond between hemoglobin and oxygen and facilitating the delivery of oxygen to the muscles and organs. John West, author of Respiratory Physiology, tells us that an exercising muscle is hot and generates carbon dioxide and it benefits from increased unloading of O2, which is oxygen, from its capillaries. The better we can fuel our muscles with oxygen during activity, the longer and harder they can work. In light of the Bohr effect, overbreathing limits the release of oxygen from the blood and in turn affects how well our muscles are able to work. End quote. So what's this Bohr effect? Well, in 1904... Um, this guy, uh, Christian Bohr, he, he won a Nobel uh, prize. He's a physicist. And he discovered what is known as the Bohr effect, which is a central component of the oxygen advantage. So how Bohr put it is, is he said, the carbon dioxide pressure of the blood is to be regarded as an important factor in the inner respiratory metabolism. If one uses carbon dioxide in appropriate amounts, the oxygen that was taken up can be used more effectively throughout the body. So Okay, let's what's the sh- what's the punchline on what you need to know. Hemoglobin is the part of our blood that is responsible for carrying oxygen from the lungs and into the tissue and cells of our body. So, to optimize our energy, we want to get really really good at helping hemoglobin release the oxygen, and that requires proper levels of carbon dioxide. Over when we overbreathe, this disrupts that level and it leads to less oxygen release so the primary goal of McEwen's oxygen advantage method is to help us recalibrate our carbon our carbon dioxide levels essentially getting us comfortable having more of of it in our bodies okay so we could go on and on and on and there's so much in here um i could do a long extended review i have so many pull quotes from this book that i that i had made notes on but let's get to let's to keep this short and keep it sweet. Let's figure out. Okay, so what do we do? Well, what's what's the the breathing we can do? So basic, right? Number one thing is breathe through your nose. McEwen says in order to address breathing volume and increase uh, bolt score, bolt is a is a type of score for for your breathing. The first step is to go back to basics and learn to breathe through the nose both day and night. As any child is aware, our nose is made for breathing, the mouth is made for eating. You were born breathing through your nose and it has been our primary conduit for breathing for hundreds of thousands of years. It was only when our ancient ancestors were in dangerous situations that they reverted to mouth breathing to take in greater volume of air in preparation for intense physical activity. It is for this reason that mouth breathing is synonymous with emergency, freeze, fight, or run activating the same fight or flight response that our ancestors experienced but these days usually without the accompanying physical exercise to allow our operating system to revert to normal uh, to revert back to normal so you should be breathing through your nose essentially all of the time and even yes during intense exercise with rare moments uh, for a little bit of mouth breathing, and there's a bunch of zone th- training exercise they do, but if you look at professional professional level athletes that are really tra- they are not breathing through in their mouths, especially anything you know lower than zone four, they' they are breathing through their uh, they're breathing through their nose exclusively. So the only time we used to breathe through our mouths, was when we were trying to be chased by a tiger. Now, if you think about it, it's, and look, this is the where the role of chronic stress is we're always like engaged in mouth breathing, essentially living in this constant state of fight or flight stress, which we know physiologically, psychologically is a very, very bad idea. That leads to really, really bad things. So breathe through your nose all the time. So, Okay. What if you can't breathe through your nose? What if you have some sort of obstruction? You need to get that addressed. So you need to go to your doctor or go to your, you know, they'll probably send you to an ear, nose, and throat doctor, and you can get that fixed. If you have obstruction in your nose, like I have from deviated septums and all this stuff, you need to get that. You can get that fixed because if you're not able to breathe through your nose, you are going to be, you know, ginning up your nervous system to think that there's a threat. And again, long-term effects of that. So, okay, we want to be breathing. And so let's talk about this now. When we're breathing through our nose, we want to be breathing from our abdomen, not from our chest. Your chest is your thor- you know, thoracic breathing. Abdominal breathing is your belly. That's your belly. So w- the question is, why do we want to do this? Well, here's, here's what McEwen writes about. He says, abdominal breathing is more efficient simply because of the shape of the lungs, Since they are narrow at the top and wider at the bottom, the amount of blood flow in the lower lobes of the lungs is greater than in the upper lobes. The fast upper chest breathing of people who chronically hyperventilate does not take advantage of the lower parts of the lungs, limiting the the amount of oxygen that can be transferred to the blood and resulting in a greater loss of CO2. Not only this, but upper chest breathing activates the fight-or-flight response, which raises stress levels, and produces even heavier breathing. Observe your own breathing when you are stressed or watch the breathing of anxious relatives, friends, or colleagues. You will see that this type of breathing is generally located in the upper chest and goes at a rate faster than normal. When we are stressed, we tend to over and resort to breathing through the mouth. Stressed breathing is faster than normal, audible, produces visible movements, and often involves sighs. Yes, a lot of sighing. Many people habitually breathe in this manner every minute of every hour of every day, holding them in a perpetual state of fight or flight with adrenaline levels high. The work of even the best stress counselors, psychologists, or psychotherapists will be limited unless they first help their patients address their dysfunctional breathing. This is why I'm always harping on breathing. When oxygen delivery to the brain is reduced, no amount of talking and reasoning is going to correct this deficiency. Stressed and anxious patients can only make the progress they really need when their bad breathing habits are addressed. So this is some pretty amazing some pretty amazing things. Have you noticed how you breathe when you're stressed? Just check it out next time. Notice what's going on where you're where you're breathing. Stress is rapid chest breathing, fight or flight, and it's it's not where you want to be you want to get out of there because it's not good for you unless you really have a a a threat that you have to neutralize like you know you got to get the tiger off of you so slow down breathe through your nose and breathe into your your abdomen that's the tip number one all right and so let's get just like like what's so the goal is there's there's more tips for breathing but the the ultimate goal to keep this short is to be effortless when you when you breathe you want effortless breathing so here's what what says about that This philosophy of effortless breathing is echoed by authentic teachers of Indian yoga and traditional Chinese medicine. I use the word authentic in order to differentiate practitioners who have a deep knowledge of breathing and how it affects physiology from those who don't. Unlike many modern Western teachers of yoga who instruct instruct students to breathe hard in order to remove toxins from the body, authentic teachers know that when it comes to breathing, less is more. The traditional Chinese philosophy of Taoism succinctly describes ideal breathing as so smooth that the fine hairs within the nostrils remain motionless. True health and inner peace occurs when breathing is quiet, effortless, soft, through the nose, abdominal, rhythmic, and gently paused on the exhale. This is how human beings naturally breathed until modern life changed everything. So we want our breathing to be quiet. We want it to be rhythmic. We want it to be controlled. And and that's what I think he's getting at by meaning effortless. So that's just a, a little hint. One of the things in the book, he's got tons of practical exercises to, to help us optimize. So you can check out the book. Um, one of these ideas is designed uh, to stimulate the positive effects of training at altitude. Now, I live in Colorado. There's a lot of athletes that come to Colorado to train especially like cyclists and they'll even wear obstructive devices that obstructs their breathing uh, just so they can train. Um, and because there's a lot of positive effects of, of, of training at altitude um, in which you, you know, you go for a walk and just practice breath holding. So breath holding is one thing. So here's one little thing that you can try. That's, I don't, you know, you don't need medical supervision for this, but is go for a walk, breathe normally through your nose and then Take a small, silent breath in, and then take a small, silent breath out, then holding your nose closed with your fingers until you feel a strong need to breathe. And then quickly recover your normal breathing through your nose. don't you know, you don't want to hold this for so long that you, you can't recover your breath within two or three breaths and then repeat. So how many paces can you take? Believe it or not, McEwen has helped asthmatic kids, get to 60 paces 60 i don't think i can do that i mean i'm and i'm practicing some of this i'm working on it and 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 especially even in doing some some you know higher intensity training Uh, and it's kind of quickly how fast you will adapt and how you know how much harder you can go while properly oxygenating your muscles while while breathing with less it's kind of crazy so start with that just play around with that a little bit and and check out the book if you want to know more about breathing now one of the things i know i'm going to get some emails about is well what about the wim hof method um which is very centric in breathing there look that arouses the autonomic nervous system to do some pretty uh some pretty amazing things and so we can even review that if you want. We can do maybe another, another deep dive into, into what that is. But the point is, is we, we don't breathe correctly. We are not, if, if you just think very basically, if, you are being ru- if you're running around being chased by a tiger, how are you going to breathe? Well, you're going to be breathing through your mouth and, and all the way up in your lungs because you're trying to get the hell out of there. And that is a very, very stressful event. But if you're not in a stressful event and you're still breathing that way, think about the ramifications of what that's going to do long term to your body. We're not designed to be in a constant state of hypervigilance or threat. That leads to chronic disease. And one last thing I'll mention about this, because a lot of issues that I see, a lot of issues that pilots have that we have is sleep issues. And so um Here's one last quote. I keep, I keep finding more quotes, you guys, because like, I just love this book. But he writes, For many years, I too woke up tired and lethargic, suffering from poor concentration throughout the day. The key to improving the quality of my sleep was incredibly simple. All I had to do was to learn to keep my mouth closed during sleep because we are unaware of how we breathe at night. The only sure way to ensure nasal breathing is to wear light paper tape across the lips to prevent the mouth from falling open. Over the years, I've introduced this taping method to thousands of people with incredible results. Unless you breathe calmly through your nose at night, you have no idea what it feels like to have a great night's sleep. Taping the mouth at night is a simple but very effective technique. And while it may sound a little strange, it is well worth getting used to. So if you breathe through your mouth at night, and signs might be waking up with a dry mouth or just waking up and feeling really tired... There's some good solutions out there. You can go on Amazon, you can get uh, 3M uh, micropore tape, put it on your lips before you go to bed and try it out. And yeah you're gonna you know you might feel kind of funny and look a little strange, but I, I've done this with clients and it has uh, been like transfer like life changing to them, just making that one subtle shift. To getting them to breathe through your nose if you can't breathe through your nose you need to go and get that looked at by a, an ent so that you can you can address that because if you're not breathing through your nose you're breathing through your mouth you're breathing through your mouth all the time you are in a constant a constant state of hyper of hyper stress and that's not going to help you so anyways okay that's it i think hopefully that was useful oxygen advantage if you guys have any questions about that I want you to send me some uh, send me some emails, podcast at lifteffect.com. And I think that is about it. Anybody interested in the V1 project, we just started a new cohort. Uh, send us an email um, info. You can send in, uh, emails to, actually you can go to the v1project.com and you can fill in your information and we can get you uh, signed up for the next cohort, which I think will be starting mid to uh, late summer so that's off and running results have been pretty good they've been actually pretty awesome the community is is building itself and it's really exciting to watch so uh, i think that's the latest and greatest from here and i hope everybody has a good safe week and we'll look forward to seeing you next week okay take care bye Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Lift Effect Podcast. If you wanna dive deeper into this episode and every episode, go to our website, lifteffect.com forward slash podcast. If you're enjoying the show, we would love it if you'd follow us on Spotify and rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate your support. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, all with the ID Matthew McNeil. This show is brought to you by Lift Effect, a clinical mental health and consulting company that assists air carriers, corporate flight departments, pilot unions, and commercial pilots by providing comprehensive psychotherapy and mental skills coaching services to pilots with mental health and mental performance-related issues. Visit lifteffect.com, that's L-I-F-T-A-F-F-E-C-T.com, to book your free consultation. And finally, this podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of counseling, psychotherapy, medicine, or any other healthcare service, including the giving of medical advice. No therapeutic or provider patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and any materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional psychological advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining advice for any psychological or medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on the Lift Effect podcast.